Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties Too. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I love people who love dogs and cats, which is what this show is all about. Thanks for listening on Long Island's only NPR station, WLIW-FM, where Dog Talk originated 13 years ago. You can hear all previous 680 shows in the podcast library at RadioPetLady.com, along with my other Pet Talk podcast radio programs. Dog Talk is a production of Pet Media, Inc., which is solely responsible for its content. This show is brought to you with the generous support of Waruva, a family-owned pet food company that makes a wide variety of high-protein recipes for cats and dogs using human-grade ingredients. Because the Foreman family respects the nutritional needs of cats as obligate carnivores, they make only wet food in cans and pouches so cats can avoid dry, carbohydrate-based food. This show is also made possible by Dr. Elsie's, a privately owned company founded and run by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian in Colorado. Dr. Elsie has personally created specialized litters to meet every cat's needs along with their human family members. Dr. Elsie's is also the founding sponsor of the New York Cat Film Festival. This show is also supported by Earth Animal, privately owned by Dr. Bob and Susan Goldstein, who've combined science and nature to create products for natural animal wellness. Earth Animals Nature's Protection line provides flea and tick solutions without chemicals, and their Zen tabs and Zen pens are made with full-spectrum hemp oil with naturally occurring CBD to calm cats and dogs with anxiety. I have an extremely special hour for you. I consider this my gift to you. I consider Mark Doty's writing, and in particular his book, Dog Ears, a gift to all of us. I feel so happy to have found him, to have found this book. I found him through one of his poems in Unleashed, which you guys remember was a whole show, reading poems by poets and writers' dogs. This is a book about what dogs, in particular one dog, or two dogs meant to Mark Doty. He's quite an extraordinary person. This book was a was the best book of the year in the Washington Post book world. It also won the Israel Fishman Stonewall Book Award for nonfiction. He has won so many awards as a sublime poet, and he's also taught all over the country in in fancy writing programs. But I think that he has more to say, in my view, having read I think nearly everything there is written about dogs. More to say, more philosophical musings about dogs and what they mean to us than anyone I've ever encountered. And I just want to say, Mark, I love you. I love oh, you. you. I love your dog, Bo. I love your dog, Arden. I'm sure you'll write about your new golden retriever, Ned. You really yes. are a philosopher king where dogs are concerned. And this book is so chock full of ideas that when you wrote them in 2013 must have shocked people. And now this is our, uh, the language that we use about dogs. Do you ever have a sense of your prescience looking now at, in 2020 back and saying, oh, you're all just catching up with me, all of you so scientists and all of you kind of I love my dog people. <laughs> Did you feel you were there first? No, I, you know, I thought there's always a, a fringe or at least a group of people who took their animals' lives seriously and believed they had emotions, believed they had memories, thought that they were dignified and worth considering as, you know, fellow citizens of the world. Uh, dogs seem such an opportunity to study everything, to learn about how we live and how we think. 
So how could you miss that? What's interesting to me is one of the very first things that you talk about in this book are ideas that I've actually never thought about, and I don't know that others have. The issue of dogs being without language and without words, and it's so interesting that that is is part of your understanding of what makes them special to us, but you're a wordsmith. Your whole life has been not just words, but as a poet, very specific words used very carefully. Does that strike you as a kind of odd irony? Well, you know, poetry in particular, my art that I practice, I guess, with the most devotion, rushes towards silence. That's what poets love, is going to places where there are no words to try to find something. Things that you can say easily, you don't need poetry, you know? You need it to go to the difficult, to illuminate places where there isn't the light of language. And so I'm fascinated by, say, looking into an animal's eyes and seeing intelligence there, sentience, but not, I know it's not quite like mine. You know, it's a different kind of mind I'm able to perceive at work in there. That fascinates me. The dog can't tell us what it's like to be a dog, right? But we can watch and we can interpret. You have a list. It's your own list, and it's very special, about seven things about dogs that I think are worth all of us thinking about and considering, although some of us may have thought of one or two of them. Do you know what that what that list is? If not, I can remind you, because eyes, the gaze, is number one on your list. Here's that list right now. Two is, ju- right, it's been is no judgment. No judgment is a really interesting one because people talk about unconditional love from dogs. And gee, my dog loves me no matter how bad my hair looks or no matter how my breath bad my breath is. That's sort of banal. Yours is something, your perception of that is something, I think, more philosophical. Well, the idea that a dog will never leave you. If the dog is unhappy with you, if you're unfair to the dog, if you're not meeting the dog's needs, the dog is made out of loyalty. So that's very different than what we expect from other people. That sort of basic ground of commitment that the dog makes is a remarkable thing and one that I think shapes our relations with them. That must have been true since the very beginning when dogs came into human lives. Right. And people thought, oh, phew, someone I can just hang with. No problem. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 no judge. Not judgy. This is a not judgy other creature, said the man That's in the right. cave. Uh, <laughs> right. Number three is silence, no speech. And you also talk about young children. Not only that young, very young children have no speech and yet we're very drawn to them, especially if they mm-hmm. might be our own, but also <laughs> the fact that we were once without speech. What about that idea that dogs are some younger earlier version of ourselves we all remember uh, perhaps clearly perhaps in a more vague and intuitive way the time when we were not as separate from the world from the things around us as we are as adults you know a time when you didn't have words for something so everything was strange because you didn't quite couldn't easily say that's grass and now i don't have to worry about what it is you know right so don't just bring us back to that kind of freshness of perception and suggest the world coming at you without language as a, a veil in between you and things. Interesting. And and something that even divides people from each other in misunderstanding because mm-hmm. the right. words can get in the way. Yeah. Um, Whereas the entire world tribe of dogs can get along or not. You know? Right. Exactly. <laughs> without and then, words to divide them. Right? Yeah. Connection to wildness was number four. What mm. about that idea that dogs are our for many of us, our primary link to nature, to the natural world. I live in New York City, and I see every day the way that strangers walking by look at my dog, Ned, 
and something turns in their gaze, something is caught in their attention frequently, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's a, it's a responsiveness that is not willed and not exactly rationally explainable. It's a reaction to a living thing that's not the usual, to something with fur and snout and fangs, you know, yeah. and beautiful paws. And I love to see that happen. And I feel for myself when Ned does something a little bit unaccountable, for instance, when he hears an emergency vehicle go by at a certain pitch, he will stop and raise his face up to the sky and quiver his lips and howl, quietly howl, matching the pitch of the vehicle. He wants to get it just right, and he has to vibrate his lips in a certain way to do that. Now, who taught him that? That was not my (laughs) idea. (laughs) So this is sort of a little revenant of wildness, some some trace of his wolf life. It's very beautiful. And that and word revenant is a lovely word. And the idea that, I mean, I live in Vermont where you used to live, and a, a great deal of this book takes place in Vermont, and some of your dogs came from Vermont shelters or backyards. And the fox that are doing something that fox do, I know nothing about fox other than that they must be mating. It sounds like people screaming at each other. And mm-hmm. my dogs don't know how to respond. At first they were alarmed by it, and now – they're just baffled. So, you know, what is their connection to wildness, right? Sure. Because- we have removed them yes. from nature, quote-unquote. Right. Um, but they're a little closer maybe than we are. So Yeah. And, the, and they make us more more attentive to it. They do. You know, when I lived in Provincetown, I would walk with my dogs every day, sometimes several times a day, in the beach forest. It's a large tract of land set aside long ago for public use. And to be there among the foxes and the loons and the wild geese, this is the same area where Mary Oliver would walk every morning. And Mary's poems came out of that landscape. And we got to traverse that. And it was such a, just an amazing privilege. I wouldn't have been out there two or three times a day by myself. I'm not as dedicated to that as Mary was. But um, because of the dogs, I would go. And it changed everything for me. Well, Mary Oliver is, is one of my most favorite writers about dogs, and she's also a great poet. But, see, I wouldn't read her if she hadn't written about dogs. That's how shallow I am. You have a, a great <laughs> moment shallow. in your book where one of your dogs drags her to the ground. That's like, how we were How cool, <laughs> one poet dragging another to the ground. It was wonderful. There's there's so many moments like that, and, and they have humor, and they have, I don't know, just they're real. The, and the next one is a dog's relationship to time. Mm-hmm. And you talk about the veterinarian being a bridge to that, the bridge to, I guess, the, their lifespan, the shortness of their life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the fact that they, you know, don't live as long as we do means that we watch them travel that arc, which is like the arc we travel, but they do it in a much more compressed time frame. So to bring a creature into your life as a young one, as a puppy, and watch that infant mature and grow, discover the world, and then continue to mature, become a settled adult self, and then start to fade is beautiful and heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. It's as if you get to watch this arc in time, and your job as the companion person is to be the steward through that life. You're, You're the person who's going to help that dog get health, be alive, be well, and when it's time, leave the world. Very often, you know, because our pets live longer than animals do in the, the same species might do in the wild if it existed there. Were there wild golden retrievers running around Scotland, <laughs> they would not be as long-lived as those in our homes, you know. So that's a terrific role to play, and it means that we have a kind of um, almost like a coaching relationship to, or a supervisory relationship to other beings in time, and it makes us think about ourselves and our own lives. It makes us consider mortality in a different way. Yep. Most kids, you know, their first experience of death in the modern world is through animals, right? Mm-hmm. Because 
It used to be that, that people died at home much more than they do now, that there were, uh, I'm thinking about this is an ironic thing to say, but there were fewer plagues than there are at this moment. Right. Um, here in New York, it doesn't feel quite like that. Uh, so Emily Dickinson, for instance, by the time she was 20, she had experienced so much death, so much loss of friends and family members, friends, families, her own family. That's less likely now. And it, that means that our education in limit comes often from my relationship with animals. And you write about it really beautifully. The first um, piece, the, and I, I wish you could just read the whole book out loud. I mean, that would make <laughs> me very happy. But I, I, I did do that. You can get that on CD, by the way. Ooh, <laughs> ooh. So I highly recommend you buy the book because any place you open it, a little bit like other books you might love, whether it's the Bible or Anne Lamott, you pick it up and you can read any page in this book and be moved by it. But I would love oh, you to you. read about walking Arden at the bottom of page 10 to the sort of th the three quarters of the way down 11. It's, it's a little bit right in the beginning of the book talking about the ark. I'm walking Arden, our elderly black retriever, on the street in front of the apartment. Arden's been with me since he was a pup, himself retrieved from an animal shelter in Vermont. The 15 years of his life represent the story of that decade and a half of mine. He's outlived Wally and came after a bit of convincing to be totally devoted to Paul, the man in my life now. And he's outlived Bo, with whom he shared house and walks and water bowl for seven years. He seems to have been old for so long. As he's gradually hobbled by arthritis and cataracts, as his deafness intensifies, he grows more and more touching in his persistence, his intent to continue his walks, and his descents and panting ascents of the apartment stairs. Paul says that Arden's like one of those old men you see every morning on the beach in Miami, the barrel-chested kind in a tight black bikini who throws himself into the water for a swim no matter what the weather. The colder the water and the more blustery the day, the more he seems to take a fierce pride in his morning constitutional. That's Arden, panting and hurtling his way up the stairs. I love him fiercely, especially just now, the way he likes to lie in bed between us and gaze into my face while I'm reading, the bedside lamp lighting up the amber depths of his cataracted eye, which looks like it's covered by a skim of coconut oil something white and reflective when the light catches it, and the fierce thump of his tail on the black maple floors when we come home and find him awake and waiting for us. He can't easily leap to his feet to greet us anymore, but he can pound that tail on the floor with a glorious, regular ferocity. Uh, again, this is the kind of, of writing that the book is just made of. It, that's the fabric of it. It's beautifully noticed details, and, and there's a universal. I guess in each of the dogs we own, in each of the ones you've owned, there is a universal. Each each is an individual. We love them mm -hmm. in such different ways, and they have a million characteristics that are individual to them. But the universality of dog in our lives, yeah. I can't imagine you living without a dog. I can't imagine that for uh, me, but you couldn't. Yeah. I can't imagine you not living with I, a dog. You know, I took a break for four years in between these two dogs described in the book, Arden and Bo, and adopting Ned. And that was partly because there was lots of travel in my life and disruption. I was teaching in many different places. But it was also I just needed time after 16 years with those two to sort of recalibrate myself. And then suddenly, I was just possessed by the need for a dog. It just came <laughs> sweeping over me like a tidal wave. And Ned moved into my life very shortly thereafter and has now been with me for 10 years. Wow. So he's already, he's already an older gentleman. I'd love you to read another section I pulled out that, again, mm -hmm. has to do with the passage from puppyhood to adulthood to somewhat of old age. And, and this mm -hmm. idea you have of our animals, our dogs being a vision to us of the arc of our lives, their lives, the lives of people and other dogs that we've we've loved. And I think it 
that the way you write makes us more aware, more alive, more woke to what it is about that dog-person relationship. So I'd love you to, to read this one as well. The new and the faltering. Fifteen years of Arden's body coexists in my awareness, beginning with the awkward puppy who was too little to climb the stairs of our old house in Vermont on his own and had to be carried up to sleep on the rag rug at the foot of the bed because he refused from his first night to sleep alone. Wally thought a puppy would make noise and keep us awake, so we'd set him in a box in the kitchen with a blanket and an alarm clock whose ticking we'd read would simulate a mother's heartbeat. But Arden would have none of it. He cried mightily, knocked over the box, and proceeded to disassemble the wooden barrier we'd put at the kitchen door, and then stood at the foot of the stairs and cried till we came. Once he was upstairs, he went right to the rug, curled up, and never made a sound the rest of the night. He'd come exactly to the place he wanted to be. And at the other end of the arc, there's that body struggling again with the stairs, failing hips, heavy breathing from the gray muzzle, steps tentative when the light bulb was out on the landing because he couldn't see well through those oily-looking, cataracted eyes. And in the middle, the sleek young adult, ambling through the blazing beech woods some Provincetown autumn when the leaves seem an extravagant spilling over of riches, his big black paws wet with dew, his lovely thick nostrils working overtime, sleek retrievered tail in the air. His parentage remained forever mysterious, since he was found running around with an unrelated older dog on a backwoods farm near Barry, Vermont, and brought to the animal shelter at two or three months old. A Newfie lab mix? He had the square head, water-resistant coat, and rescuing habits of a Newfoundland, but he was smaller and faster, and loved as retrievers do to snatch a tennis ball. Though his preferred game was not fetch, but I have it and you don't which is a terminally unrewarding sport for the one who hasn't got it. You have that so well described right there because <laughs> I've never heard anyone talk about that. The dogs for whom the funniest thing is, hi, see what I've got? No, you don't have it. I have it. And they just That's want so you to have it. It's so boring. But the dog is so happy. It's so great. That it's just like a total gloat. I have uh -huh. it. You don't. Hey, look. How, look how close I'll bring it to you. Nope, it's still mine. We're and yeah, take... people are nothing like that, right? No, no, right, exactly, <laughs> nothing like that. We're going to take a tiny break, and when we come back, talk more with Mark Doty and this divine book, Dog Ears. This show is brought to you in part by Merrick Pet Food, which has been making natural, nutritious pet food for 30 years, with varieties crafted with healthy grains or their grain-free recipes. Merrick Foods never use preservatives, fillers, or anything artificial. Recipes always start with proteins, USDA certified meats and fresh caught fish as the first ingredient, along with actual fresh fruits and vegetables. This show is brought to you in part by Zymox Oratine Dental Products, whose oral gels and sprays help keep dogs' teeth clean. Zymox also makes dermatology products for dogs and cats, topical cream and spray for skin conditions, which work to prevent or reduce inflammation and heal skin irritations. And for dogs with chronic ear problems, Zymox has an ear cleaning solution. This show is also sponsored by Canine Active, a natural mobility supplement to help senior dogs with the aches and pains of old age move comfortably again. Clinical trials of Canine Active show improvement in a dog's mobility within a week without side effects, and it can be safely used along with other supplements and medications. I am back with Mark Doty and even more of this wonderful, wonderful book. Mark, you talk a lot about your personal relationships in this book, your first lover who you lost to illness, and then Paul, and and depressions you've had. You're very, very open about your own life and your own ups and downs, particularly loss and suffering. Do you feel that without these dogs as your companions, things would have been worse? 
Oh my gosh, yes. You know, um, for one thing, they give us something to focus on. Yep. So even though, for instance, I adopted Bo when, while he was very, very ill, he, I thought that I was giving him a gift because he wanted a new dog and wanted that life and energy in the house. But in fact, he only lived another month. And then there was I with an untrained, uh, very obstreperous, uh, unruly golden retriever <laughs> who didn't know a thing about grief. You know, I, I was right. racked with loss and, and I didn't know what I was going to do next, but what I had to do was take that dog for a walk and get him his meals and get to the vet and teach him, please, to calm when I call him, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So that was crucial. That, that was a saving thing for me. So I think a focus outward in that way really helps us. And they also provide a kind of, well, in the case of this book, I'm talking about my life, but I'm really telling it through the lives of the dogs. I, I think I'm a little in the background. I wanted the canine characters to be up front, and you can kind of see behind them what's going on in the human lives. And I think that was a, a way that I could tell the story. And 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 you do it extremely well. There's a a, a, a series, a limited series on, on Netflix called Afterlife, a Ricky mm. Gervais um, piece about he's basically just mourning the loss of his of his wife mm -hmm. and there's a german shepherd left behind which was both of their dogs but the german shepherd keeps him from suicide keeps him mm. from complete alcoholism depression right. giving up the dog's hungry you know and it's it's those little simple things that make us realize that even just in slumpy moments in our lives not the big bad moments how much a dog can can step in and and make a difference. Yeah. There's a wonderful description you have of yourself in the animal shelter looking for a dog that, that I'd love you to read. And then I want to talk about the street dog in San Miguel, sure. who is a haunting character in the book, <laughs> a, a yeah. street dog who you very much wanted to rescue and didn't feel you could. And I wonder how many of us have seen such a dog in our lives and, oh. and think back to them. I'll always think about that dog and the way you described her. I, I love her. I want to go back and get her. I know. I do too. I've never forgotten that face. Yeah. And the way you wrote about her makes mm -hmm. her unforgettable. Mm, so so you. write about yourself in the shelter. It's, it's okay, way, here we are. the middle of 74. Um, at this point, my partner Wally is quite ill. He's home paralyzed from the waist down in bed. He's longing for another pet in the house. And so I go to the animal shelter. I was walking down the single aisle of cages, dogs coming up to greet me, barking a bit or holding back, eyeing me to see what I was up to, all manner of sizes and colors, ears and tails, when I came to a pen in the middle of the room where a very skinny and very calm golden retriever sat sphinx-like on all fours, serenely looking up at me. He eyed me and began to thump his blonde tail on the concrete floor, a gesture I couldn't know I'd come to love, a greeting and declaration that could be prompted simply by looking at him and beaming the psychic equivalent of hey you in his direction. That thump always seemed to me the physical version of a laugh, a little goofy, a bit dumb, entirely delighted. But who was he? If he was a golden, he was the skinniest one I'd ever seen, a very narrow head and his chest so thin that the bone at the center stuck out sharply, the prow of a slender blonde boat, and his waist was even narrower. The label on the cage read, Bocephus, part Saluki, mix, three years old, too much for owner. Awful name. <laughs> Saluki, an extremely narrow North African breed, something like an elegant ethereal cross between a greyhound and a delicate yellow rat. Three? Too much? Well, if he was full grown, he was a gangly fellow, all sharp bony edges. And if this was too much, I couldn't imagine what calm would look like. <laughs> I knelt down and he rose and walked to the cage door, bringing his face near to mine. Then he unrolled a long tongue splashed with purple spots as though he'd been eating blackberries. He lay down again and gazed at me with what I can only describe as 
absolute openness as if each new thing that came into his attention were greeted with the same cheerful equanimity, a curious and cheerful regard. He extended upon my direction. My body, heart, impulsive head, said yes. What a great description <laughs> of that moment in a shelter of saying, yep, yep, yes. Oh, so many of us have done that, right? So many of us have done that. But, you know, the way you bring words to bear and to bring it, just focusing on those details. I wonder for a minute in terms of the writing process, what is it like for you to write prose for which you've also won many awards and a huge amount of praise versus poetry where you only have these very few in the end that you can work with. Do you put that level of attention to the words you use when you're writing nonfiction? It seems you know as if the words are very carefully chosen in home, by are. the way. They are. Although I did hear in that passage a repetition that I would now like to change. Oh, dear, of um, course you would. <laughs> um, you know, when I first started writing prose, it felt like taking a vacation because I didn't have to think about lines and the weight of silences that the poet cares about. And you don't mm -hmm. think about sound quite as much. And honestly, now it's, uh, it's sort of like being right-handed or left-handed ambidextrous, you know? It's a different form, but the words must be just as well chosen. They have to carry their weight. It's a little more relaxed than the tightness of a poem. It's a little more, in a way, more intimate. You know? um, but it's not any easier. <laughs> it, it can't be. You know, right. It's going to be really its best. Well, I wonder when you read other people's prose who aren't mm -hmm. poets, those of us who write who we're, we're kind of greedy and sloppy and, you know, we, mm -hmm. we might have words dribble down our chin or fall in our lap <laughs> sort of thing. We, we don't show them the reverence that a poet does. Do you read other people's prose, nonfiction in particular, but even fiction and think, ooh, that could use some tightening up. Ooh, that was, that was, that was just sloppy. Too many words right there. Well, you know, we read, we read for so many different reasons, right? right. Sometimes yeah. you read for information, and sometimes you read just for fun, or to um, explore an idea and hear somebody else's voice. I admit that I really love a good sentence. And when they're not there, I think, okay, well, I'm not reading this for the pleasure of the sentence, but when they are there, it's just a feast, you know? Yeah. It's just such yeah. pleasure to see somebody who really knows how to turn a good sentence. That's, that's a really good point, and I guess that's why this book is such a feast and why any place one opens it, all the sentences separately and together have such they're so rich they're you know it's like a reduction it's just that they they have all the flavor in them you don't have to keep going and going to get to the point of it or the heart of it or the or the flavor of it it's 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 very rich that's I, a great analogy it's the balsamic reduction of exactly exactly yes. so the bottom of 90 this is a wonderful <laughs> passage you do a great deal of walking with the dogs as you'd mentioned and i know that uh, when Alexandra Horowitz has written, done some of her studying at, at her Barnard dog studying place and her writing, which is wonderful and very passionate and compassionate about dogs, she talks about walking a lot and the importance of it being for the dog and not just for you. But you observe it with a poet's eye um, and an artist's eye. And so I think that it's, it's a wonderful description of one of the many walks that you describe in the book. And I think it should make all of us more mindful to not just clomp along and kind of give the dog a yank on the neck. And if you can't be somewhere as beautiful as where you are, were mm -hmm. in Provincetown, to enjoy and pay attention to all the things the dog is smelling and experiencing. Mm -hmm. So you get that vicarious closeness. So I'd love um, you to also, read this. You know, the dog can extend your own senses because you're yes. noticing what the dog is sniffing and looking at and responding to, and you're invited to pay some attention there too. Yes. Walking, a way of being in the present, 
taking what comes, relinquishing to some degree control of what's next, simply following the path seems to lift me a little. The beach, the dunes, the cranberry bog and furrow, where a long trail through high moors leads to the bluffs over the sea, those are places for warmer days. When it's frigid, the deeper protected reaches of the woods keep us out of the wind, at least. Bo would take off, catching some scent on the wind, and Arden would bolt after, always trying to catch up, though of course it would be Arden who always came back first. Now and then Bo is gone so long I get worried, but then here he'll come, lifting his ears when he hears his name called, furrowing his brow with curiosity, evidence of attention and focus coming into being. And Arden is gaining a new brightness in the eye, once again that deep gleaming brown that reminds me of Emily Dickinson, describing her own eyes as like the sherry in the glass that the guest leaves. Walking is an affirmation of physical life. We're in the world, we're breathing, we're together. I move in a straight line, more or less, along the paths, and sometimes the dogs are right in front of me or beside me, but more often they are threading around the path, padding in the woods or thickets or marsh on either side of me. I begin to conceive of us as one extended consciousness, reaching out in different directions, sensing our bodies making a braided trail, but our awareness overlapping. That helps just now, when a self seems fragile, erasable. With the two of them, I'm joined to something else, perception expanded, not just stuck here in the world, in my own bereft, perishable, limited body. It isn't that one wants to live for the sake of a dog, exactly, but that dogs show you why you might want to. Oof. There's, there's a sentence that, that just mm -hmm. sort of gleams. A lot of the book, uh, when you aren't describing something very much of your own, although partly as well, is about mourning the loss of dogs and how mm -hmm. deep that mourning is. And you write early yeah. on, and again, 2013, when you first wrote this, and thank God it's still in print, the idea of mourning for a dog, grieving, being bereft, yeah. was considered laughable, obscene, mm -hmm. absurd. Sure. In our society, and even to mm -hmm. some extent now by those outside of our luckily ever-widening, ever-wisening circle of dog lovers, talk a little bit about what your experience was as someone who knew perfectly well how deep the grief was and saw it in other people. How did you help other people, if in fact that happened, acknowledge their own grief, acknowledge that mourning a dog was, a, was something honorable to do? Well, that was an aspect of the book that produced so much response from readers. And I think the reality is that mourning for a lost animal is one of the most profound secrets, really, in our culture, that people suffer deeply, uh, feel those losses acutely, and feel they can't talk about them because mm -hmm. they will be dismissed, not taken seriously, they'll seem sentimental or foolish. I remember going on a, uh, you know, a drive time radio show in some place in the U.S. Uh, by phone being interviewed. And talking about the book, and the interviewer was determined to say, but isn't it just a dog? In the long run, isn't it a dog? And I just, that just a dog drove me crazy. You know, like, as if that love for another creature, that bond, the years you had together are so readily dismissible. People who love dogs know that that's completely a falsehood. Yes. There's no such thing as just a dog. And I must say that if anybody has an aging dog, this book will make will will deepen your awareness of your sadness and vulnerability, mm -hmm. but also the celebration of that dog's life. And for anyone who's recently lost a dog and is grieving, or lost a dog any amount of time ago and is still grieving, it's a book that I think helps all of us understand why we would grieve that deeply because how deep and fascinating and immutable that relationship mm -hmm. is. I don't think mm -hmm. anyone's captured it the way that you did. You you Thank say you. something quite extraordinary in the book that I that I totally love and why I think this book 
has such would have such resonance for anybody who picks it up. We come to books in order to see ourselves reflected, to find company for our inner lives, to test ourselves against the interiority of another. And I think that's the gift of your book, Mark, is mm. that you open your interior, your heart, your soul, your mind, vis-a-vis your own dogs, and it helps us to think, oh, yeah, I see what mm-hmm. he means. Oh, oh, is that what mm. I was thinking or mm-hmm. feeling? Was that what that dog was all about? I missed it. You know, one of the greatest pleasures of reading, one of them, is seeing your own experience, something you felt or thought but never quite put into words, seeing it spoken. That's just this moment of recognition that yes. brings you into a human family and a community of perceivers, mm-hmm. a community, in this case, of people connected to dogs. And that is a marvelous thing. It makes us less alone, you know, and it makes us stronger. Absolutely. And it makes and it validates our own experience that we may have, we are mm-hmm. devaluing. I think yeah. it, it gives power and value to these relationships because of how you're able to capture it. Let's talk about the stray dog in San Miguel, anyone who has mm-hmm. traveled to call it a third world country, mm-hmm. if you want, right. call it India, which, you know, I guess is, I don't know, there's some better PC language now, like a developing country, but mm-hmm. the amount of suffering on the streets of dogs, whether it's Greece or Southern Italy or yeah. India or Mexico is one of the reasons that it can be very deeply disturbing to some of us to travel to those places because right. the dogs are, Curs, C-U-R-S. They mm. are starving, thirsting, mangy, right. broken-legged, uh, and and treated like oh, vermin for just a word that comes to mind. Right. And yet other places, there's community dogs, Bali and stuff, where everyone feeds them and everyone's cheerful about them and they don't treat them like something annoying. But you in San Miguel, I think this dog who caught your eye describes so well this instinct we have to save an individual. Talk about mm-hmm. that dog, about that girl. Oh, you know, um, these street dogs were, were always visible, and they'd be coming around sniffing and, and looking for food, and most people just simply ignored them, both the uh, people who live there and, and visitors as well. And if you catch one by the eye, if, if that dog understands that you're really looking at her, something else happens. Yes. So this particular little, and you know, all these dogs are kind of mixes of who knows what, uh, uh, they kind of uh, tend towards homogeneity. So they, they wind up, whatever they start out with, they're short-haired and spotted and um, look a little bit coyote-ish, only smaller. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. this dog was had a kind of friendly attention to me and radiated intelligence. It was just, she was clearly somebody, you know? Mm -hmm. You can look at a creature and you can say, well, that's, there's another robin or there's another caterpillar or whatever. But some creatures, you know, that one is really thinking right now. (laughs) I can see perception taking place behind those eyes. It Mm -hmm. was that kind of dog. So she followed us back to our hotel. And she knew that she couldn't come in, enter the door, which was open all the time because she would be chased away by the um, the staff. But she just curled up right outside the door and fell asleep and waited for us to come back out again. And I was looking down from the balcony that night. I saw her sleeping there, and I I so much wanted to pick her up and bring her in. Yes. I thought, how do I do this? And and I had the idea that you couldn't bring a dog back from Mexico easily because of issues of their health and um, who knows what all right. the permits and what would be involved in that. So I didn't try too hard, uh, although it was painful to leave her there. And clearly you can tell from the book that she was very much inscribed on my memory, that, yes. that real vulnerable being. 
who made some connection to me and sort of reached out in a gesture uh, that was both uh, one of friendship and one of asking for help, you know. And she was there for days. I mean, not just yeah, that one day. And she, yeah. and she was like, hey, uh, Mark, Mark, <laughs> uh, Mark, over here, yep. over here, here Mark, um, yeah. you know, I would happily go home with you. And, and it was probably virtually impossible then to transport a dog. I, I have a friend who's a world traveler and a huge animal lover. She has a place of her own on, on the coast in Mexico and mm -hmm. routinely scoops up any community dog she finds and takes oh, them right. to be spayed and neutered right. and yeah, then puts them back on the beach, which is sort of like, you know, a TNR with cats, but also feeds them. And on a trip to India, she travels the world and is always noticing animals in need. Although, what can you do when there's thousands of them? Yeah. There was one small Indian female dog that did exactly to her what this little mm. dog to you, did to you in San Miguel. The difference was this woman was bound and determined, and it, it surprised me, I must say. She was going to bring this dog back from India. And she got the permits, and she got the paperwork, and she brings mm. the dog back to Bel Air, California, to... A mansion. Not that that's relevant at all. I mean, mm -hmm. anything would have been better than the street this dog lived on, only to find that she was pregnant. And so oh. there was, you know, mat maternal care. And, and then there were pictures of each of the puppies had its own lovely bed and its own toys and all of its shots. And friends immediately, you know, got lined up to adopt them. And I thought, isn't life so strange? Yeah. One dog can make that, can make that impression on a person yeah. who rescues them from the depths of misery to mm -hmm. the heights of being loved and cared for doesn't it isn't there something so random about the animals the dogs we love so much and sleep in our bed and have some yeah. of our lunch and all these other dogs you you bring you make that so it's it's a it's just heartbreaking poignant but what can you do it teaches us so much about the human condition, you know, yes. and the way that we have structured our societies. Uh, there was an animal hospital in, in New York, uh, a very expensive and fancy one, very high-tech. And my dog, Bo, died of kidney disease. They can do kidney transplants there. I don't know where they get the kidneys that are transplanted into Good question. Good question. But I know that the operation costs at least $30,000 a kidney. Right. Now, what's the morality of giving your dog a $30,000 operation how, how is that going to affect the quality of life of that dog? And what about spending $30,000 to, to um, help sustain a creature's life a little longer? I, part of me says, yeah, I would do that. <laughs> and part of me says, well, wait a minute here, you know? It's well, complicated. It's complicated. It's complicated. I, yeah. I did a show um, in, uh, recently interviewing a guy who has the number one Bengal cat in the country, a, a mm. wonderful guy, breeder, who does a huge amount for all kinds of cat things, whether they're owned, bred, or, or, you know, not owned. And uh, someone, a, a company that does animal cloning asked him, could they clone that cat? And he'd get one of the clones and they'd get one. Okay. And so, a couple of people wrote in, take me off your e-letter. How dare you promote? I'm not promoting anything. <laughs> it's a question of thinking about what is what lengths will people go to yeah. to buy at whatever cost a, a, a supposed other version of this dog they love so deeply or yeah. get six or nine or 12 more months of life, leaving aside that the animal is going to go through a bit of hell and high water yes, absolutely. to go through it. I, I think your book has asked all those questions without nailing it on the head. But, mm. but one of the things that you write about the dog, in the, the street dog in San Miguel is 
how it opens your heart to compassion. And, yes. and that's an important thing, Mark, in the book. There's so much compassion for other people, for other dogs. I hope it awakens everyone's feeling about compassion. is isn't just, are you safe? Are you comfortable? How are your kids? But mm. you know, it's a bigger world, right? And you talk about dogs making us into a connected community. Do you feel that, particularly in New York, where dog people really do, you know, give each other the secret handshake, as it were, <laughs> um, do you think that the dogs do influence us positively that way? Oh, I do. You know, I, I'm reminded of a story I think I tell in the book about uh, a meeting fellow who asked me, you know, in a kind of idle way what I would do with a pile of money if I had some. And my answer at the time was that I would open a shelter for homeless golden retrievers. You know? and, uh, <laughs> People have done that. You know that, right? Yeah. And he said to me, well, you know, God, don't you think that that money should be spent on you know, making other people happy? And my response to this, well, do you think that love is a limited little thing? We only have so much of it. It dries up if you use it. You know? <laughs> In my experience, the more you give it away, the more of it you've got to give away. You know? Yes. And so that, yeah, compassion is like that. And it doesn't matter what you're feeling compassionate towards because one kind of compassion will lead to others. And yes. it's, a, it's a door into generosity you know, and nice. into connection. Nice. I think that's exactly what I feel flowing through the book is that mm -hmm. openness to the suffering of others, to one's own feelings and how dogs tap into that and make us aware of it. It's, it's got so much um, depth to it. I'd, I'd love you to read, read something just so darling, tiny. It's one of your on tracks on page 111, and, and then we'll take another little break. And what I love about it, to those of you that haven't been through a drive through with a dog, I personally, living in the country, there's a drive through pharmacy and a drive through bank, and there's even the car wash that the dogs are in the car for. And I have both my shoulders stained for life, or the jackets, of the dog <laughs> drooling the minute that we pull up to any of these drive throughs because they know that biscuits are often part of the drive through So this is right. a, a wonderful a little entre-act called Ordinary Happiness. We're pulling up to a drive-in bank teller's window. Mr. Bowes in the back seat, head out the driver's side window, and the weary teller lights up as soon as she sees him. For as soon as Bowes spies a human face, he lets loose a radiant flurry of greeting, grinning, tongue lolling, tail wagging so intensely that the rear half of his body switches from side to side. It's as if he's known the woman all his life, though he's never laid eyes on her. She produces a small biscuit, which is passed through the metal drawer that extends mechanically from her containing space into my containing space. She watches him gulp it down, and she says, their work is just to bring joy into this world. Oof. Heaven. Heaven, heaven. <laughs> I'm going to remember that the next time that I'm covered in drool at the drive-thru and not <laughs> say to Maisie, will you stop that? We're going to come <laughs> right back after a very quick break. This show is brought to you by Evermore Pet Food, a privately owned company making fresh dog food shipped to your door. Evermore is owned by two women who select fresh organic vegetables mixed with fresh, humanely raised beef, lamb, chicken, or turkey to make nutritionally balanced dog food. After low temperature cooking, the sealed pouches are frozen and shipped right to your home to be served as a complete meal or as part of your pet's diet. We are also supported by Iceland Pure, a privately owned company that guarantees freshness and purity in their human-grade omega-3 fish oils for pets, odor-free salmon, sardine, and anchovy fish oils, responsibly sourced in the clean waters of Iceland and Norway. Now they have added next-level premier fish oil with the documented health benefits of shark oil. The show is also supported by Daily Dose, a daily dental chew with an outer layer that cleans dog's teeth, 
using a patented ingredient that breaks down the biofilm and harmful bacteria that can accumulate on teeth and gums. The core of each chew contains clinically proven supplements to help manage a dog's joint, heart, skin, or anxieties. We are back. Uh, to people who live in, in cities, a lot of the experiences you have in dog years are somewhat rural, but there, there's still a universality to them, right? I mean, something, I think so. you know, waiting outside a deli for your owners, mm-hmm. equivalent to, <laughs> I don't know, not quite running on the dunes, but, but sort of along those lines. Sure. One of the things I've watched is Ned accepting new people into our pack. You know, when he waits outside a store and watches when my friend is inside the store, does not take his eyes off until my friend comes out, that means that that person is now part of the pack. Nice. <laughs> well, a golden is better at that than some other random mixed breeds or, or mm-hmm. cranky or more aloof dogs like, you know, a skipper key's not doing it. So those who right. have a skipper key, they're <laughs> darling, but they're not really interested in extending their pack. Reading this book, I had a golden retriever, which one could have said was my heart dog, Roma. But Mm -hmm. to people who've had golden retrievers, leaving aside the whole issue of, you know, do you adopt? Do you go to a responsible breeder who's doing it really carefully like the women at Avidog? Or in your case, you found Bo at a shelter. There is something about goldens which is just completely different. They just smile from ear to ear. (laughs) Now, you have an incredible description of a golden who is not just a useless love bug like our dogs have been, but a guide dog for a blind person that Mm -hmm. is such an incredible anecdote that on page 140, you just have to share it. It, it, Whenever I see a working dog, whether it's a military working dog and particularly guide dogs or dogs working with people in wheelchairs or other uh, challenges or disabilities, I just want to cry. I do, mm-hmm. I, because that dog mm-hmm. has now understood everything that goes on in a human's life, human needs. Yes. And it, how do they do that cross-species thing? I don't know. People complain to us that we're anthropomorphic about our dogs. Well, what do you call it when a dog is able to envision mm. a person's feeling and needs? You know what I think is the most astonishing thing is that a successful guide dog must know or choose when to disobey a command. Yes. And they can't graduate unless, you know, they will That's say, right. no, I will not walk you into that canyon, or no, we will not go over the edge of the yep. train platform. Yep. You know? And think about a dog who makes a decision to defy you. That's a remarkable act of, of discernment. Hmm? Very much so. Of character. Yeah. Yes. And this dog's so, character is pretty amazing. I love this dog, yeah. When I first saw a golden retriever, you know, being a service animal, I thought, oh, but I had it wrong. <laughs> because you had an, un- an obstreperous, unruly one, yes. Yeah, and they look like to play, you know. Yeah. What does it mean to say a dog has knowledge of limit? That question is near the core of our living with animals. How much can we know what they feel? To what degree is any description a matter of twisting their animality into a mirror of ourselves? Once when I went to give a talk at a distant college, I met a guide dog named Hammer a golden retriever of notable intelligence. He led the electric cart of his sightless mistress down the rather steep ramp of the aisle to the edge of the stage, where she listened to my lecture while Hammer rested on the floor beside her wheels. But when it was time to leave, the aisle wasn't wide enough to allow the cart to turn around, and she would not be able to steer should she try to propel the cart backwards up that long incline. So Hammer used his teeth to take hold of a rope attached to the back of the cart and began to walk gingerly backwards in a very straight line tugging the cart up toward the entrance of the auditorium. It was the last thing a dog would naturally do, walk backwards for 40 feet in a very straight line, tugging a weight. 
What startled me was perhaps not so much that Hammer had been trained to do this unlikely thing, but that he so clearly believed in its absolute importance, the necessity of getting it right. It seemed this quiet act a triumph of will and nerve. Those who don't believe in animal character or intelligence will probably have turned from these pages long ago, <laughs> and with them safely out of earshot, I can relax into the confident assertion that a dog's eyes may brim with intelligence, preference, temperament, eagerness, forms of memory, assertions of desire. Anyway, if language is metaphor, a system of signs tacked none too firmly to the real, then our words only point imprecisely toward our own feelings anyway, and may as well point just as inexactly toward those of dogs. A golden retriever is perfectly capable of walking through a city, knowing there will be few such walks to come, and I am certain that his vision might thus be heightened, made more fiercely poignant. And I am likewise sure, through whatever alchemy of bonding takes place between those who live together over years, that his human companion might also be filled with something like dog vision, his own eyesight taking in something of that shine which death must lend to his animal sense of the world. It's pretty amazing. I mean, this... This dog is doing what so many dogs do for people if they're not actively doing something that's an action, but they're tuned into people. And then there are yeah. dogs who have to be tuned, trained to be tuned in very specifically to whether it's autism or PTSD. But those of us who just live with dogs, it's so rude of us to disregard mm -hmm. the intensity with which they pay attention to us. I'll tell you a little story about my dog, Ned who came to me into my life years after my partner Wally had died. And I was watching a movie. Uh, it's called The Iron Ladies. Meryl Streep is Margaret oh, yes, Thatcher. Yes. Right? Mm -hmm. And in that story, uh, Margaret Thatcher's husband, who is dead, his ghost still lives with her. She yes, talks to him all the time. Right. He's in the house. Yeah, yeah. And I'm watching this movie, and I'm perfectly relaxed and enjoying it. And Ned comes over and sits beside me and leans against me. And then he's putting a paw on my knee. He's looking up in my face. He's just clinging to me. And I thought, what's this about? And then comes the end of the movie when the ghost leaves the house. He says, I'm going on my way now. You'll be all right. And never comes back. Mm -hmm. And at that moment, I burst into, and I'm sheer sobs. I mean, I was just racked with it. I didn't know that was coming. And it was about oh, losing the dead again. Yes. But Ned knew it was coming. Ned knew it could feel that feeling mounting in me before I was even wow. conscious of it. Remarkable, that kind of sensitivity, you know? Yes, but because you were sensitive to him, you knew he was triggering on something, an odor, you, a feeling. Yeah. You knew something and was happening. someone else could go, stop bothering me right now. I'm trying to watch <laughs> a movie. I, so that's really what I want to say about the book is that it makes us much more, should make us much more respectful of the the endless gaze of these dogs toward us and mm, noticing I'm so our happy feelings. That Oh. That would be so happy if that happened for readers of this book. Oh, it has to. The number of times that Maisie comes and I'm stuck at the stupid computer with the mouse and, you know, falling yep. down the hole yep. of email yep. and the internet. And she comes over and she's bonking my right hand. And I'm like, not now. Can't mm -hmm. you? And then I think, wait a minute. She doesn't need attention right now. She knows I need it. Yeah. And yeah. boy, then you feel so chagrined for being like, you know, the crabby <laughs> master. As right. opposed to a co-inhabitant of the world together. I can't be present with you because I'm busy looking at my phone. You know? Yes, yes. Yeah. And, and we know that, <laughs> I that, do too. that little babies who, or even toddlers who don't have language yet, which you talk about in the beginning of the book, what do they hate more than anything? Back in the day when there was a big black telephone receiver to pick up, they mm. hated their human grown-ups <laughs> to be on the phone. They would cry. Right. They would wail. They would uh, know that they didn't exist anymore. They literally uh, were out of the... The wow. parents' existence. Yeah. 
you know, that has made, that very phenomenon has made teaching my classes on Zoom during the semester a little bit of a problem because oh. Ned does not want me to do that. You know, he, he really oh. thinks I shouldn't be paying attention to that screen and all the voices coming out of it. You know, there are other things that are more important. <laughs> right here and now, Dad. <laughs> just scratching his ears, you know. Yes, of course. Well, I would love you to read near, near very near the end of the book so we make sure we have enough time and a little conversation about it. But it's it's about how you felt after after the dog's death and mm -hmm. it's it's very it's wonderful it it just really describes for all of us oh, what you. that what that moment is like i hope it doesn't choke you up too much to read it but it does me well you know arden uh, was 16 years old and i was told by his vet and by other people oh you know you'll know when it's time and i thought no i won't because this dog right. loves his life he is not yes. going to want to leave yes and the day that he was ready i knew it immediately i just mm -hmm. took one look at him and he's done mm -hmm. and so his vet came to the house and euthanized him there it was very peaceful and very easy and this is a few days later we try our best a good end we tell ourselves a fine end the best we could do we talk about mr arden and the stories of his days and then we don't for a while and we each allow ourselves to weep usually one at a time because somehow doing it together just seems too much for us to take a long life we say fine life and not nearly enough sometimes the house is so empty we can hardly bear it and then sometimes it seems like no one's gone isn't arden in one of his favorite spots watching us won't he in a moment come around the door he's an absence and a presence both the way he will be to greater or lesser degrees for years to come we keep collecting his hair and his little dark puffs from the floor paul finds an empty can of triumph in the recycling bin and we put the hair in there on the mantle we make a memorial ad, as people in our small town like to do, to tell the community about the passing of loved dogs and take it down to the newspaper office. The fellow who takes our ad has an old dog, too. We bring a photo of Arden on the beach and his name and dates and a stanza from the most unabashed elegy for a dog I know, Robinson Jeffers' The House Dog's Grave, in which an English bulldog named Haig speaks from his grave outside the window of the house where he'd lived. I changed my ways a little. I cannot now run with you in the evenings along the shore, except in a kind of dream. And you, if you dream a moment, you see me there. Wouldn't you know that the most misanthropic of poets would write the warmest of elegies for his dog? I emailed the poem to people who've known Arden to tell him he's gone. I cut out the last words and put them on the table where I write next to a photograph of Arden in the deep green of the summer garden. I am not lonely. I am not afraid. I am still yours. They help a bit those lines. Paul and I are strangely unanchored. We take ourselves out for strolls to the bay, go across town to look at the marsh, amble back, noticing the gardens and the new shops. We stop for coffee. We sit a long time on the bench in front of the coffee bar. No hurry. This feels strange to me, unfamiliar. For 16 years, there has been someone at home waiting to go for a walk. Ay, ay, ay. And that is the hardest part and the book is infused with this sense that every walk we have every fun time we have with dogs and and i hope after reading dog years people will understand that all that interstitial time counts too it's yeah. there's a rich life going on when almost mm -hmm. nothing is happening but the yes. idea that it that the pending loss of it is always built into the relationship mm -hmm. is it's true you just live <laughs> in this state of of heightened love and sadness all the time. Well, it's true of our relationships with other people too, except mm -hmm. we don't think about it, mm -hmm. you know, because human lives are longer. Mm -hmm. But every every bond is shadowed in that way. It's part of what it is to be in time, you know, is to be 
either face to face with or, or trying to avoid the fact of limits, you know? Yes. And how, as people like part of our real work as human beings, is how do we figure out once we know that and we understand that what we love we will lose, how do we go on loving? Because you know, nobody wants to have a life without love, right? Absolutely. How do you continue to love animals? How do you continue to love your beloved? How do you continue to love children? Anything in this life when you know how fragile it all is. And of course, somehow or other people do it. They most certainly do, and this book really helps them to do it. I'm going to ask you to read one longish anecdote uh, as an upbeat, funny, fun sure. ending um, to the book to show just what saps we are about our dogs and everything has <laughs> okay. to be perfect and the long list uh -huh. that we leave for people who might look yes. after them when we go on a trip or even after we die. Don't forget that he doesn't like the red biscuits, only the white <laughs> So yes, absolutely. read this wonderful dog-sitting anecdote, if you would, on page 107. Thank you. Here we go. Being away, of course, necessitates that we find dog-sitters. There is no better profession than mine for one who seeks people interested in such work. Graduate students are often far from home and from beloved animals, and often living in Spartan conditions. Thus, ask if they'd like to spend a week in a comfortable house with lots of good books, cable TV, and a stereo, and oh, four pets, they're often delighted. When I have a class over to the house, I confess I keep an eye out for a student <laughs> who especially gravitates to the dogs. In this way, Arden and Bo made particularly splendid friends and engraved themselves upon the imagination of a member of a number of young writers. Noir took the dogs jogging along the beach, even managing to wear them out in the salty tide flats. Karen walked the deep trails by the Coralville Reservoir down to the muddy red water and cooked dinner for young poets while the dogs delighted in the company. Jen read in bed in Provincetown, one dog sprawled on either side of the covers beside her, one head on each of her thighs. Julie, a former Alaskan dog musher who once nearly froze to death on the back of a sled and who reported that the rumor about freezing being pleasurable, even transcendent, <laughs> seems to be entirely true, took them hiking in fields of sunflowers deep in the Wasatch. From time to time, though it's no one's preference, a kennel is a necessity. The strangest of these on Stock Island near Key West was run by an old woman named May who sat in her front room in a flowered house dress and said in a voice shredded by decades of Chesterfields, They'll be fine. <laughs> absolutely no affect, as though she'd said it a thousand times. I looked doubtful. She says, What's the matter? A night away from home won't hurt him none. Her services are alarmingly inexpensive. <laughs> her little stucco house is painted a peeling, <laughs> tropical green that might once have been lime, and there are stucco kennel houses beside it, and frankly, it seems like some kind of strange Haitian voodoo catacomb, <laughs> but we don't know anyone here, and must both be in Miami overnight, and there are other dogs around, so somebody trusts her. A little gravel yard is marked by a withering, deal-heated elephant's ear. Am I just being a snob? This is the funkiest outpost of Florida life I've ever seen, and there's no actual sign of trouble. It's just that everything, May included, feels right on the edge of ruin, as if it'll tumble into a swamp without a trace of its ever having been. The place smells of cold concrete and vegetation and, what, cantaloupe? <laughs> we are completely nervous about May's kennel all our 24 hours in the sleek, couldn't-be-further-from-May world of South Beach. We go straight from the Key West airport to Mays, where we're greeted with the same response we get any time we return. Both dogs leap in the air in a way that seems unlikely, if not impossible. Standing up on their hind legs, they lift off, make exuberant, twisting shapes in the air, land on all fours, then do it again. Completely none the worse for wear. Oh, it's a great story. It's a great <laughs> book, Mark. It's just Thank such you. a pleasure. Thank you Thank for you writing guys. it. Thank you for opening all of our eyes to the ways in which dogs are so special and could make us be better people, too. Thank May you. I say you are a wonderful interviewer. Well, you're, you're kind to say that. You're an inspiration as a dog lover and as a writer. If, if only we could all be half the, 
the people that you are and that your dogs and the and the men in your life have been. You're great. You're great. You're great. I hope Thank you, you so write much. something soon about Ned. We we all will be waiting with with yeah, be Ned poems. Ned yeah. poems coming, mm -hmm. folks. Hey, I should tell you, I have a new book out that oh is my actually God. about. It's about my relationship with Walt Whitman. It's called What is the Grass? Walt Whitman in My Life. It's out from Norton. Nice. Uh, just came out in April. And it's getting amazing reviews. I'm really excited about it. That is so great. Um, you'll send me the cover so we can have the cover of I both books that go with sure. this interview. Thank you all for listening. You go right to the internet, to your bookstore, wherever you can, and buy Dog Ears by Mark Doty. Thanks so much for being here.